Good morning. Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. If you're visiting with us, uh, we have been studying through Paul's letter to Titus. This is the fourth message in nine messages on the book of Titus. And today we'll be in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. But as we read, let's start back at verse 5 to get the fuller context. Hear now the words of the one true and living God, as Paul speaks to Titus, saying, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And this is our passage for this morning. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. (laughs) They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled." They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this word. We thank you for giving us the gospel. Pray that we would guard the good deposit that you've given to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for, uh, in your life, death, and resurrection, giving us this good news, this glorious gospel of the blessed God. So we pray that you, the living word, would open up the written word to us this morning. And Holy Spirit, you inspired this word. Now we pray that you would illuminate this word to our minds and our hearts. So we ask this for the glory of your great name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I find contrasts in leadership to be fascinating. So maybe at your job, you've had a a change in leadership before. And your direct superior has changed. And you notice all the differences, right? One might be a micromanager and one might be very hands-off. But in all these decisions they make, you notice the difference. You're comparing and contrasting. Or you kids, at, at school... You might you know, have a teacher all year round, and then all of a sudden you have a substitute teacher for a day. You notice the differences, right? Substitute teachers are different than the regular teacher, right? We always love substitute day. <laughs> 
But again, you're comparing and contrasting their, their different styles, their approaches. Right? Or think about any time there's a presidential transition. Right? We're always comparing the former president to the current president on policy decisions and the way they handle different crises and, and all of that. But in Titus 1, Paul is showing us a contrast in leadership. On the one hand, he's showing us godly leadership. He says, appoint elders. And as, as Art showed us last week, that's the first step in a healthy church. That's the first step in aligning and setting the church straight in order for it to thrive and flourish. But today's passage shows us the flip side, the contrast, and that's ungodly leadership. And ungodly leadership is detrimental to the health of the church. It throws us out of alignment. And so we need to see this contrast. Now, I work in the credit card industry. And we see fraud all the time. There are just fraudsters out there who are constantly doing scams and creating counterfeits and doing all kinds of things. I see it all the time. But that's how I feel when I read the New Testament or when I read the whole Bible. So Jesus and his apostles were constantly warning about this. Almost every book of the New Testament warns against false teachers and false teaching. And that's because false teachers are extremely dangerous. Look at verse 11 with me of Titus 1. Speaking of the deceivers, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So that word for upset, they're upsetting whole families. It's the same word that's used when Jesus flips the tables in the temple. So they're overturning, they're subverting, they're destabilizing whole families. And the word for families is actually just the word house. Okay, so that could mean household, like a family, or more likely, it means house churches. Okay, the early church at this point primarily met in people's homes. It's more than likely what Paul is saying is they are overturning and subverting and destabilizing whole churches. That's how dangerous this is. But, but either way, whether he means household or house churches, Paul's point is this. False teaching is dangerous, not just to individuals, but to whole communities. It can spread through families and small groups and Bible studies and whole churches. So, Paul warns Titus, and he warns us and prepares us for how to deal with this problem, these threats to a healthy church. <laughs> so I think the big idea that Paul wants to get across to us is this. A healthy church must identify and confront false teaching. And that's how we're going to break down the passage, is that a healthy church identifies false teaching and a healthy church confronts false teaching. So first, let's look at how we identify false teaching. Now, Titus had a real problem with this in the churches of Crete. Okay, look at verse 12 again. We've read this every sermon so far, but let's hear it again. <laughs> One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, 
Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul adds his amen. This testimony is true. So this is a quote by a guy named Epimenides. Everybody say Epimenides. Epimenides. You can do better than that. Epimenides. Epimenides. All right, you're speaking excellent Greek. So Epimenides lived about half a millennia before Paul. And he was a philosopher and a poet and a, and a priest to Zeus. And he did not care for his hometown very much, which was Crete. Even back hundreds of years before this happened, the Cretans were actually false teachers among the pagans. They said that Zeus had died and was buried on Crete. And Epimenides was not very happy about that. So Paul is saying they were false teachers even among the pagans. They're definitely going to be false teachers among the church, among the truth. But we know that this isn't just a Crete problem, a Cretan problem. This is a human problem. Right? Yes, Titus had to deal with Cretan culture, but we, we have modern secular culture. We have our own challenges, and the human heart doesn't change. So if we are called to confront false teaching, and we are, we need to know how to recognize both false teaching and false teachers. We need to know how to spot the wolves. But as soon as we start to do this, there are some difficulties that arise. <laughs> One is just the extremes that people tend to go to on this issue. So on the one hand, on one end of the spectrum, you have all kinds of people online, right? discernment bloggers and things like that. And that, there is a place for that. But they can find a false teacher in every nook and cranny of the church. You say one thing off your false teacher, right? they're heresy hunters, constantly trying to find things wrong. That's a very unhealthy obsession. It's not, not healthy at all. But on the, on the other end of the spectrum are people who don't see the need for discernment even a little bit. I think, why are we causing such a fuss about this? Why are we confronting false teachers? Isn't that kind of unkind? And can't we just agree to disagree and all just get along? And Paul's answer is no. We can't. And he's going to show us a much better way of handling false teaching and false teachers. Another difficulty is not every doctrinal disagreement is an instance of false doctrine. It isn't. So it's how we categorize the teachings of Scripture. So we at River Oaks, we have a doctrinal statement, and it's broken down into two categories. Essential doctrines and non-essential. Not that they're not important, but they're non-essential. So there are some doctrines that are core and central to the Christian faith. That's what makes us Christians. So, God is a triune God. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can't budge on that. Jesus is fully God and fully man. We can't budge on that. He died a substitutionary death on behalf of sinners, and we are justified through faith in Him. We have to hold the line. That's what makes us Christians. And that's where false teachers tend to attack is on those essentials. But there's also non-essentials. Not that they're not important. And it's good for us to talk about them. But these are things that we can discuss as Christians, we can disagree on as Christians, and still remain in loving, united fellowship with each other. Things like 
eschatology, end times stuff. We all agree that Jesus is returning, correct? Yes. The manner of his return is a little difficult to figure out sometimes, right? Are you, are you post-mill, all-mill, pre-mill, pan-mill? It'll all just pan out, right? <laughs> what are, okay, we can discuss that. Right, Bob and I have a fun time discussing that. We have some differences, right, Bob? But that doesn't mean we're dealing with false doctrine. It doesn't mean it. So there are um, distinctions there. We could talk about that more, but... but uh, you can go look at our doctrinal statement to see how we've broken that out. But there's essential doctrines and non-essential doctrines. And then I think there's a difficulty just in the phrase false teacher itself. Okay, so when we hear false teacher or false prophet or something like that, we tend to think of the celebrity pastor who flies into church on his private jet. And he preaches from like a gold-plated Bible. And he's like, you know, all your diseases and sicknesses will be healed for just five easy payments of $19.99. Okay, that's obviously bogus, right? We know that's unbiblical. But that's not all that the Bible has in mind when it talks about false teachers. Oftentimes what Paul and the other apostles are talking about is something much more subtle. Now, Paul... He couldn't have imagined the internet, right? But in our pockets, we have access to some of the best Bible teaching available. Praise God for that. But we also have access to some of the worst. So we have to have discernment. Information is just coming at us all the time. We have to be a discerning people. But also, even more than that, I think what Paul and the apostles have in mind are people in our churches. In Acts 20, Paul warns the Ephesian elders of people coming up from among you who will lead people astray. So this could be just, just people in, in a growth group or in a Bible study or in a one-on-one -on -one conversation over coffee, and you could be led astray by them. Again, we need to have discernment. They don't have to be in this pulpit. They don't have to have a large platform, right? but we need to be on guard. So let's think about some false or some red flags for false teaching. We've kind of cleared the way for that now. So let's talk about some red flags that Paul gives us. Look at verse 10 again. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So first they're insubordinate. That is, they are rebellious, they're anti-authority. Okay? Now, there is a place to question authority. There can be very unhealthy and toxic leadership, even in churches. And so there's a time and place for that. But if you're questioning all authority all the time, that's unhealthy. It is. And, and sadly, I've seen this with, um, as much as we love church planting, right? churches starting other churches, I've seen really an insubordinate attitude in, in church planters before, where they're not sent out by a church. They have no authority over them. Right? They handpick their fellow leaders that will just be yes men. And if they ever push back, ah, time to rotate through a new group of elders, <laughs> right? People who don't want to submit. And so 
If there's someone who is very likable, very charismatic, very intelligent, and yet they cannot and will not submit to authority, that's a huge red flag. And if you cannot and will not submit to authority, that's a huge red flag. But it's not just the authority of godly leadership that they're against. It's the authority of God's word itself. Look at verses 13 and 14. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So they have turned away from the truth of God's word. And now they're basing their teaching, not on the Bible, but on Jewish myths. We don't know exactly what they were, but myths, made up stories just the ideas and philosophies of people, and the commands of men. Not God's holy law, but man-made rules, self-made religion. That's it. So um, be careful if there's someone who says, God told me, enter the blank. Now, we believe that God is alive and active, that the Spirit can prompt us and the Spirit can show us things, of course. But it has to be tested by Scripture. We are called to test the spirits. And if it doesn't line up with this book, it is not true. Or if people base all their teachings off, you know, just the newest book that's going around, right? The, the kind of fads going around in Christian circles, but they don't line up with God's word. We have to be a people of the book, a people who joyfully submit to the authority of this word. So they're insubordinate. They're also empty talkers. We see that again in verse 10. <laughs> they're empty talkers. That is, they, they talk, but it's empty. It's vain. It's unproductive. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. They don't live it out. We see this even uh, with more clarity in verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And that's strong language, but it's meant to wake us up out of our stupor. So these false teachers, they put on a very good show of religiosity, but that's all it is, a show. I'd say their lives don't match. I've heard this even with, um, with teaching on parenting. Yeah, as a parent, you know, sometimes you just need to go get some help. You want to get some instruction. And there can be people who, um, they teach confidently all kinds of things about parenting. This is how you should discipline. This is how you should spend your time. This is how, you know, all the little principles and details. You're not all coming from the Bible. Some may be wise, but, the, but they're not coming from the Bible. But then their own children are out of control and insubordinate. So we can talk a lot, but, but are our lives matching? Okay, so in a sense, these false teachers are the anti-elders. Elders, godly leadership, are meant to pair sound doctrine with integrity of life. But the false teachers, the ungodly leadership, they combine false doctrine with corruption of life. Their talk is empty. Verse 10 also calls them deceivers. They are deceptive. 
They are trying to add to God's word or take away from God's word or twist and distort God's word. So the best way to be able to spot false teachers is to be a people of the book. To be good Bereans. In Acts 17, they were the original fact checkers. And Paul came to town and they checked everything he said according to the scriptures. We need to do the same. We need to be rich in the word, grounded in the word to be able to spot false teachers with their deception. And you may have heard of this. Um, you may not, but uh, there's a lot of talk these days about deconstruction in Christian circles. People becoming not evangelicals, but ex-evangelicals. And um, just one example of this, sadly, is Joshua Harris. Yeah, some of you may remember you know, back in the 90s, right? You know, I kissed dating goodbye. It was a big deal. Right? But he has since deconstructed his faith. He has nothing that even resembles Orthodox Christianity in his life. And he is leading others, primarily online, to help deconstruct their faith. And not just deconstruct maybe harmful false teachings. That's a good thing. And to reconstruct on Christian orthodoxy. But just to deconstruct the core of the faith and not to rebuild anything. Right? They'll take a doctrine that all Christians throughout all time have believed and just say, has God really said? Has God really said? And it's dangerous and so many are making shipwreck of their faith because they are deceivers. And then verse 11 says they teach for shameful gain. Look at it again. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So they don't teach in order to help other people know God better or help them live a godly life. They're in it for themselves. They're fundamentally self-serving with their teaching. Okay, so I'm not harping on this, but I just want to use Joshua Harris as an example. Okay, so I'm not, not I'm just bashing Harris today, but um, you know, he's again he's trying to help people deconstruct their faith, which is not helpful at all. It's destructive. But he put online a deconstruction starter uh, set. It was a five uh, session online course for two hundred and seventy five dollars. Okay, now he got a lot of backlash and then took that down, but. It's shameful gain. Now, they might be in it for money, or they might be in it for influence, or power, or uh, the kind of relationships they can get, or the status they can get. Whatever they're in it for, they're in it for shameful gain. These are some red flags. And as Jesus said, you will recognize them by their fruits. But once we identify false teaching, then we have to confront that false teaching. Right? Because a healthy church doesn't only identify false teaching, they confront it. And this confrontation happens in, in at least three ways. Okay, So we must appoint true teachers, rebuke false teaching, and silence false teachers. So first and very brief... We need to appoint true teachers. This goes back to last week's message. If you didn't get to listen to last week's 
message, please go back and listen to it. Art preached what I think is one of the best sermons on biblical eldership I've ever heard. So go back and listen to that. This is kind of part one and part two. And John Stott said, when false teachers increase, we must multiply the number of true teachers. And so we at River Oaks, we want to be training and equipping and raising up new elders and teachers and preachers of the gospel and just godly leadership. We want to appoint true teachers. But then we, we must rebuke false teaching. Look at verse 13. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Paul is using surgical language here. It rebuke them sharply. Literally, it's cutting. Rebuke with sharp cutting so that they would be sound in the faith. Okay, sound, both in Greek and English, just means healthy. Right? If you arrive safe and sound, you're safe and healthy. So rebuke them sharply with cutting, with piercing, that they would be healthy in the faith of the gospel. And so a while back, Shannon and I started watching these um, surgery videos on YouTube. Just horrible. <laughs> Don't do it. Like They're so gnarly. They're so bad. And so we watched one where this guy had gotten a fish hook stuck in his eyeball. Oh, oh yes, that's the proper response. It was horrible, but then you watched it, and it was like, well, we have to watch it to the end to see what happens. And several people in first service pointed out that I'd, I didn't finish the story, so, that, so everyone was just thinking, what happened with the guy's eyeball? So I'm, clarify that. He was fine. They got it out. <laughs> but, um, you know, the surgeons are in there poking and prodding and, and cutting, and, and it looks horrible. But are they, are they trying to hurt that person? No. They're trying to help them. They're trying to heal them. Right? They're not against that person. They are for them. They are trying to restore them to health. And that's our goal. Right? The goal of a sharp rebuke is so that they would be sound in the faith. Whether they're a deceiver or whether they're someone who's being deceived, we rebuke sharply so that they would be sound and healthy in the faith of the gospel. We see this in 2 Timothy 2. Please turn there. It's very close. It should just be one or two pages back in your Bibles. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23. And Paul is speaking to another one of his young protégés, Timothy, and he says this. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And here it is. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. <laughs> so we have two goals in confrontation. We have a plan A. We want false teachers to be saved. We want them to repent and turn away from their falsehood and we want them to trust in the true and powerful gospel of the Lord Jesus. 
So we want them to be saved. But if that is not happening, we need false teachers to be silenced. We want false teachers to be saved, but we need false teachers to be stopped and silenced. And whose responsibility is it to rebuke false teaching? Well, it's the elders of the church alongside the entire church. Okay, so, so godly leadership is meant to hold the line on sound doctrine. That's what verse 9 says of Titus chapter 1. We need to be, um, um, hold firm the trustworthy word, be able to instruct in sound doctrine, and refute those who contradict it. But you all, as the members of this church, you're the first line of defense against false teaching. We have 10 elders here in a congregation of 300 plus So we can't be in every conversation all the time, nor should we. We're not like helicopter parents in the church. That would be weird and unhealthy. Now, Ephesians chapter 4 says that the ascended Lord Jesus gave his church shepherds and teachers so that we could equip the saints for the work of ministry. That we would all build up the body of Christ by speaking the truth in love to one another so that we wouldn't be like children blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So rebuke and correction are part of our mutual ministry to one another. This is just body life in the fellowship of the church. And this ministry of confrontation, again, it isn't just for the deceivers, but for the deceived. Not just for false teachers, but for those who are influenced and, and drawn away by false teaching. And that's all of us, by the way. We already sang, we are prone to wonder. Lord, we feel it. So prone to wonder, right? Our natural instinct is to have our ears tickled, right? We want to hear a comfortable message, but the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Our job is to keep each other aligned with the truth of God's word. So what should this look like? Let's think about what it shouldn't look like. Let's think about how not to rebuke one another. Let's look at some contrasts. (laughs) One is speaking versus listening. Speaking versus listening. So let's say you're in a conversation with someone, and they say something that seems a little off. Maybe a red flag goes off in your mind. You're like, yeah, that doesn't seem like it matches up with Scripture. Okay, Your instinct may be, I just want to open up the fire hydrant and just blast them with my theological acumen. (laughs) Probably not helpful, though. Let's slow down and ask some questions. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. Okay, so ask some good questions. Do some conversational surgery to dig through those layers and get to the bottom of the issue. What do you mean by that? a very helpful question. How did you come to that conclusion? Or not really a question, but tell me more. I get them to talk because sometimes I've had this happen where if someone says something, it feels off and then you just ask them some probing questions and over time you discover, no, it was just a misunderstanding. Or we're just not always very articulate with our words, right? So someone could say something, it's not really the way they meant it or it just sounded bad. And then you realize, no, this person isn't being deceived at all. Or maybe they are. 
But now you've asked those questions and you have a much fuller understanding of the situation. You can help them so much better just through, through listening and not, not just speaking. How about online versus in person? <laughs> so, again, let's say that you, um, you're, you're talking to someone maybe after the service and they say, yeah, I've been reading this certain author, I've been listening to this person online, and you just know, man, that person has some dangerous ideas. And so you, you get online and you, you send them a link to a YouTube video that's two hours long, just dissecting that false teacher. I think that'll do it. Probably not. The human heart normally doesn't experience radical transformation through unsolicited links to the internet. It normally doesn't happen. Now, there's a time and place for that. If you're studying through something with someone, that could be helpful, but go to them in person. Go to your brother. Go to your sister. It's amazing how much better these conversations go face-to-face, in real life, in person. Go to them in person. Pride versus humility. We don't want to approach someone to correct or rebuke or challenge them with a spirit of humility or, arrogance, or pride or arrogance. We want humility. <laughs> we want to approach it with humility, with selfless love for that person. And we are doing this to win the person, not simply win the argument. That's key. We want to win the person, not just win the argument. So I love Francis Schaeffer. If you haven't read Schaeffer, please read him. It will bless you. But um, he was a theologian and an apologist. And he said that when he would, um, he, he would have conversations and debates with like liberal theologians, he would try to conduct himself so that they would gain two clear and equal impressions. One, Schaefer disagreed with them theologically. Two, he cared about them personally. He wanted it to be crystal clear. I do disagree with you, but I love you. I care about you personally. That should be the impression that comes from our corrections and rebuke. And that happens when we correct out of humility and love. Giving versus receiving. We should be as quick to receive correction as we are to give it. We should be as quick to receive correction as we are to give it. Because again, we're prone to wonder. And we might find ourselves on the receiving end of the surgeon's scalpel, of a sharp rebuke, which is not very comfortable. And our defense is just want to go up. But, but we have to respond with humility. So if you haven't ever done this, I would suggest it that find two or three trusted friends or just the men or the women in your growth group and just give them an open invitation to correct you. It'll be uncomfortable and it'll be so good for you. Just say, if you see anything in my life, any thoughts, any behaviors, any attitudes, any beliefs, anything that's out of step with the gospel, point it out to me. Rebuke me, even sharply if needed. Give that open invitation to not only give, but receive loving rebukes and correction. And then 
Don't be falsehood-centered. Be truth-centered. So you don't need to know every false teaching that's out there. You don't need to be aware of every counterfeit doctrine. Or you don't need to understand every world religion or every little shade of atheism or whatever. You just need to know the truth of the gospel. So how many of you... So raise your hand if you've heard this illustration before. All right. You know, people who are trained to spot counterfeits, they just study the real thing. Right? Raise your hand if you've heard that. Okay. Right. It's used all the time. But it's because it's a good illustration. It's true. Right? People in law enforcement or, or banking, they don't study the counterfeits. They study the true thing. And they can detect any variation. That's what we're called to do. Right? We need to know the truth of the gospel, right? the good news that we aren't saved by our own goodness, but by the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior. The beautiful reality that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners through his perfect life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, that sinful men and women can be reconciled to a holy God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That glorious gospel. If you know it, if you know the true, authentic, and genuine gospel, then you'll be able to confront any and all counterfeits. This is what Paul's doing in verse 15. This verse, you know, on a first reading, kind of seems like it comes out of nowhere. But Paul's really doing something profound here. He says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So in verse 10, Paul identifies the false teachers as the circumcision party. Now, Paul and Titus both had a long time beef with these guys. Just go read Galatians. It was not good. You know, when Paul's telling people to go emasculate themselves, pretty serious, right? And... Um, they had this view of um, kind of the, the spiritual life as being focused on external purity. So, you know, don't taste, don't touch, don't handle. It's about what you eat and the days that you observe and, and all of these different things. It's about cleaning the outside of the cup while the inside was filled with death, as Jesus said. But... Paul is, is not just addressing that false teaching directly. He's showing them the truth. He's showing them the true, genuine thing. So he's saying, no, 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 no. It's not about external purity. It's about internal purity. So if your mind and your conscience is defiled, if you have this sin nature on the inside that hasn't been changed by the Spirit of God, then everything you touch will be corrupted with sin. And if you've been purified by Jesus... Well, we look at chapter 2. He's the one that does that. He died to purify us. Then now all things can be pure. All of creation can be used for the glory of God. So think about our phones, right? There's a class going on right now on 12 ways to, or, or 12 ways your phone is changing you. But are phones inherently good or evil? Neither, right? They're it's a neutral piece of technology, but the human heart is never neutral. So we can use a phone for great evil and perversion, or we can use it for good. 
but it's about our hearts. So that's what Paul is exposing here. And so we don't just want to focus on the falsehood. We want to focus on the truth. This is what Art and I tried to do at the justice and race training. Okay, we've done that twice on the weekends. We've done a training where, on the one hand, we were trying to uh, expose and warn against some real false teachings. Things like, like a woke social justice ideology that is just destructive and unbiblical. But more than that, we were wanting to show that, no, God's ways of justice are so much better. All right, the, the, the standards of justice and mercy that come from the true God are so much better. They're such better alternative. And we weren't just trying to expose the lies of critical race theory, which is a dangerous and divisive idea. But, but we wanted to show just how beautiful the Bible's description of our reconciliation in Christ, that people from every nation and people and tribe and tongue can come together in one body in Christ. We don't just focus on the falsehood, but on the truth. So if you're talking to someone and you're quick to correct, don't just think about pointing out the, the falsehood, but, but though that could be necessary, but think about what truth from the scriptures does this person need to hear? How can I show them the better story of the Bible to captivate their hearts with the truth? So those are some helpful and unhelpful ways to go about correction. Now, what if that doesn't work? What if our rebuke and our correction doesn't produce soundness in the faith? What if they don't respond well? Well, that's when we have to move from rebuking false teaching to silencing false teachers. Remember, church elders and church members work together in this process. It is a joint effort. And like I said earlier, you are the front line. But what if you feel in over your head? What if you're dealing with a dangerous wolf who is intent on ravaging the church? Or what if someone just refuses to listen to you? They refuse to stop spreading their deception. Come to us. That's what the elders are here for. Right? We want to preach sound doctrine week after week from this pulpit, but we also want to help with specific instances of false teaching in this fellowship. So even if you're unsure about a situation or you you just need to ask us some questions or get better equipped on how to deal with these situations, please come talk to us. We want to equip you for the work of the ministry to speak the truth in love one to another. But when things escalate, we have to silence false teachers. We have to. Look at verse 11. <laughs> they must be silenced. Notice that he doesn't say, you know, we just need to get everyone around the table and have an open dialogue about these issues, right? We need to have a charitable exchange of ideas. No. He says they need to be silenced. And he doesn't say to be silent. He tells us to silence them. Right? Now, what does that mean? Do you really realize what that means? It means that we can't be silent and say nothing in the face of false teaching. We can't. We have to open our mouths and speak the truth in order to keep their mouths 
shut from spreading that dangerous, poisonous deception among God's people. As Art showed us last week, an elder should have two voices. They should be tender with the sheep and dangerous to wolves. Tender with the sheep, dangerous to wolves. Paul silenced them. He told Titus to silence them, and he tells us to silence them. Literally, to stop their mouths, to shut them up, to muzzle them, to stop this infection of false doctrine from spreading. We see what this looks like in even more clarity in Titus chapter 3. Look over with me at verses 10 through 11. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So Paul is referring back to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 about church discipline. So you can look at it there. Look at 1 Corinthians 5 if you want to study that more. But ultimately, if a false teacher will not be silent and stop their deception, they have to be silenced by loving and corrective church discipline. They have to be. We pray it doesn't come to that point. We pray for their repentance, for their restoration, but after multiple warnings, after pleading with them over and over again, we have to silence them and have nothing more to do with them. And that sounds like harsh words. But he says, you're not condemning them. They are self-condemned. So for the good of their souls and the good of God's people, they must be silenced. Again, we have a plan A and a plan B. Plan A, we want false teachers to be saved. But if they are digging their heels in, we need false teachers to be stopped and silenced. So when, when the body of Christ knows and cherishes the truth, when we're aware of counterfeits, when we're speaking the truth in love to one another and receiving correction humbly, when we silence dangerous, fraudulent teachers, that's when the church is aligned to flourish. It's one more step in setting the church straight for to just thrive in health. In other words, a healthy church must identify and confront false teaching. So let's pray and ask the Lord that it would be so among us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you how well it just calibrates our hearts to the truth. Pray that you would defend this church from all attacks, especially doctrinal attacks against the truth of your word, the truth of your gospel. You have called us to guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to us, so help us to guard it well. I pray for, for you to raise up more elders and teachers and preachers in this body. Just as false teachers multiply, true teachers need to multiply. So please do that work among us. Please help all of us to be more and more grounded and rooted in the authority of your word. Help us to love your word. Help us to see that it's more precious than gold, more sweet than honey. And please keep us resting in the gospel of grace. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.